Welcome to Trust Tree Talks, a podcast that's committed to telling the extraordinary stories found in every woman. We're your hosts, Elizabeth Holmes and Lisa Shower. Thanks for tuning in. We're so glad you're here. We hope you caught our first podcast of our third season, Fresh Starts for a New Season. We dropped this episode March 31st in celebration of Women's History Month. This season, we're inviting guests on to talk about how they've responded to challenges in their lives and to share with us some of what they've learned along the way. Today, we are thrilled to have one of our omitted from our obituary authors, Kelly Love. Kelly Love grew up in Seattle and early on developed a passion for journalism. At the age of 20, she went to work as a television news reporter in Boise, Idaho. She spent 20 years in the broadcast industry as a reporter and anchor. In 2005, she went to work for then U.S. Representative Brian Baird, serving as his district director. Kelly has led numerous organizations, serving as CEO of the Greater Vancouver Chamber of Commerce, Community and Media Relations for Legacy Salmon Creek Medical Center, and Chief Communications Officer at Clark College. She is currently serving as the board chair at Columbia Credit Union. Kelly has two adult children, Eric and Sarah, and she shares a passion for fishing with her husband, Steve. Let's just start with kind of an obvious question, which is what has your life been like for this past year during COVID-19? Wow, right? What <laughs> question the therapist usually asks, right? I'm so glad to see you guys uh, and have this chance to catch up. So your energy always inspires me because I think it's this last year, it's all been, for me, it's been about trying to uh, preserve and keep that energy to identify when I'm at low energy, to allow myself those spaces. Um, I don't usually like that feeling of being at low energy, but I think COVID has really challenged everything that I know to be true about myself in terms of how I interact with my family and the world and myself. So that is the million dollar question. The bottom line is that I'm doing fine. <laughs> I'm doing fine. I, um, I have the protections around me that I'm able to keep my home. I'm able to feed my family. My son, who was unemployed for a while, is now employed. I've not lost any of my loved ones to COVID. And I'm starting to see uh, my elderly parents getting their vaccines. And so um, I think the gratitude list process for me has helped remind me that I am fine. That's a delightful answer. <laughs> it doesn't mean that we don't have our moments, right? Yeah, I love what you're bringing, the gratitude. That's been so hard to focus on some days, but just to remember that. And, and I know that that's something that you bring to your life. I mean, your gratitude practice is really well-developed. Before I had this chat with, with you today, I went back and I looked at my journal and um, two things pop up. A, it's incredibly incomplete. <laughs> I go for days or weeks and I don't put anything in my journal. Uh, but when I start to feel things pressing down on me, uh, what I've seen is that that has become more of a discipline for me this last year, that when I'm hurting, uh, when I'm feeling scared, when I'm wanting to control things, when I'm feeling something's out of sorts, I'll see it show up in that journal. And, and then what I'll see over the next several days is I'll see myself write myself out of that space. And that's usually a combination of the gratitude list 
it's reminding myself that I'm not in charge as dearly as I'd like to be in charge of everything. And then you get to this place where you're like, I don't really want to be in charge because I have no idea what the outcome's going to be. And then um, I'll notice that I disappear from my journal for weeks uh, until it has cycled back through again. So I've had plenty of moments this last year to reflect and, and lean in to the discomfort. But a lot of it has been <sighs> trying to place myself where other people are, right? I'm lucky in my work, I get to lead a team. And leading a team through COVID is um, its own work because I have to put myself in the shoes of each one of those team members so that I know what they're up against, what their challenges are. I, I can't just do that generically and assume that they're all going to be okay because I only get to see them through the Zoom screen. And yet we are expecting a tremendous amount of work from them. The hardest work we've ever done has been during COVID. So um, I think that's probably the other way that I deal with COVID is to remind myself that my boat, right? They say, we're all in this together, but we're not in the same boat. My boat has snacks and a blanket. And I've been very fortunate. I love that. I get to ask how you guys are doing. I would say I'm doing better since this interview started. <laughs> yeah, it helps to hear what other people are doing to center and, you know, just the visual of you in a boat with snacks and a blanket just made me feel a lot cozier this morning. So thank you for that. I mean, what are the things I'm not doing well during COVID? Um, I have a terrible chocolate issue. I have taken to hiding chocolate from my husband. The truth is I'm trying to hide it from myself. And once in a while, I will leave the house, my office here for the sole purpose of going down to the convenience store to get a chocolate bar. It's not been good. I am also not doing well at ever wearing high heels again. I look at them in the closet and I think, uh-uh. And the other thing, um, pants with zippers. I just don't know. I don't know if they're necessary anymore. <laughs> Amen, sister, to everything <laughs> you just said. <laughs> You know, it's spring cleaning and, you know, I'm seeing folks start to really lean into decluttering, right? We've seen this as kind of a, a thing now. And I looked at those shoes as well and thought, because I have some really kick-ass new heels that have not ever been worn that I don't know if they will ever be worn. Like I've started to kind of dig the whole consignment, you know, craze. And I'm like, these might all just head off to a really cool consignment store because I don't think that I'm going to wear them. I'm not going to go back to maybe some of the patterns or what we thought was expected before because I'm really comfortable in my elastic waist pants and flats or just my fuzzy socks on. So uh, it is interesting to kind of think about what we've been through now for more than just a few months and how that's going to affect the way we interact and the way we show up, literally show up what we wear um, as we start to reemerge. So do you have some excitement or some pause about what that might look like for you in terms of 
back to the office or um, out of the house for something more than chocolate bars, which I love that too, because I am right there with you. I was out around not too long ago. I was horrified by the amount of traffic. I, I am going to have to really, and not just, so here's the thing, take care of myself, figure out what I got to do to get back into the routine. So I've been going into the office two days a week. And I will say that yesterday I was down there for about three hours and hardly anybody else is down there yet. And I was kind of like, oh, I just want to go home. <laughs> and I had to parent myself through the moment and say, no, 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 no. You need to be here because I need, uh, as a lead, to be able then to help coax everybody back else uh, onto campus. I work at Clark College. And once our students are back on campus, everybody's going to want, they're like our magnet, right? We're drawn to our students. But we don't have students on campus yet. We're still in remote uh, learning, except for a few labs. So this idea of bringing back 300 people, that's just our staff, not our faculty, is um, going to be a, a process to become familiar and comfortable with it. We have a joke that one of us left the house one day and, you know, realized we were wearing our fuzzy slippers. So this next six months, I think, will be by far as challenging in a compressed time frame as the last year and three months. It's not just about going in reverse because we don't do things in reverse. We always push forward. And the pushing forward back to some kind of a on-campus presence and in the world, it is going to look different. I know for me, and I'm sure for you, we all have had a chance to look at what's important to us. How are we spending our time? How are we spending our money? What were the things that we were doing? And so much of it for me was just rote behavior, right? R-O-T-E. It's just because that's what I've always done. One of the things I look forward to is adapting and incorporating the good things that I've learned about myself this past year and uh, bringing that into my new world out there in the community. Because as comfortable as I am in my sweats with my husband next door in the other room and all that lovely stuff that comes with being at the house, I do miss people, right? I mean, when I get into a Zoom room, I just want to like, hi. And it won't be funny when we all get back to in-person stuff. I have a feeling I'll still be doing, hi, (laughs) you know, because we miss that. For everybody, it's going to be different. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward very selfishly. I have missed my mom so much. And I try not to get tender and cry about that because she is alive and well. She's in Seattle. She's 84. She says to me every time, she says, oh, honey, the phone is our best friend. (laughs) But I miss touch with her and being in her space. So she's had her, um, I have a mother-in-law who's 90, a father, a stepfather, and a mother. They've all now had their shots. So um, I'm in the process of getting my shots. I'm 57 and I just had to kind of wait my turn. And um, that's what I want to do moving forward. I want to be present, really physically present with them, for them, Um, I have missed them desperately this last year and three months. And my kids, I don't know about you guys, your kids are, so my children are adults. They're 29 and 25. And then um, there's a wife. So there's actually, I have three young adults in my life. 
the blessing about it has been that they live together. They live together in the house where they were raised because I don't live there anymore, but they do. And so um, I've really stayed clear uh, and kept my bubble pretty small because I have some contact with the folks because of, of other issues and underlying issues. Uh, and my daughter works in a grocery store. So she's just bombarded by it. I miss them. And we have some contact, but looking forward, uh, won't it be amazing for me just to be able to go hang out in their backyard and visit with them and not worry that because I saw my daughter who works at a store, that now I cannot go see my mom for at least two weeks, no matter what, until I know I don't have virus. So uh, family time is what I look forward to the most. That's amazing. That's so awesome. Well, and you guys have kids. Are your kids at home right now? Uh, I have one who's in Pullman, and okay. then, but he's been home a little bit. So we've been navigating that pod situation for a year. <laughs> That's a whole different dynamic, isn't yeah. it, right, Lisa? Mm-hmm. So we have my husband's grandson, who is a senior in high school, living with us with a bed in the living room because we sold our home during COVID. And so we only have the two bedroom condo because we didn't think we were going to need a third bedroom. And then our 14 year old. And so also I'm seeing because I don't have multiple children, I am this year now seeing the differences between kids. And so one that's thriving in online school and one that is desperately struggling with online school. And that's the one that's the oldest that we want to walk across the stage this year. So, you know, how to support him, how to ensure that we're recognizing what he needs is very different than what the other one needs. And so, you know, the two of you have more than one child. So you have already experienced some of that dynamic of they're not the same and they are not, you know, they don't need the same things. And so that element has been really interesting for me in particular to navigate because the tools that work with one definitely do not work with the other. And so how to create, you know, opportunities for pride and celebration that might be different among the two. So our refrigerator now has lots of um, items taped to it where one has a report card taped to the front of it and the other has one test that they got 100% on. So, you know, different ways to kind of um, demonstrate our excitement for the achievements that are happening in the house because, you know, a day feels like a week sometimes. And so how did we find something within the day that we're really proud of and can be positive about as opposed to the dread of a 7.55 a.m. Zoom call? The good thing is you get to do that while you're laying in bed rather than get up, take a shower, get in the car, head to school. So just different, um, different things than I thought that I would be experiencing right now. I think that's so interesting that both of you are going to be leading or are leading teams at work out of this situation and kind of what Kelly touched on of meeting everybody where they're at. And it's been such a traumatic year and that anxiety for returning to in-person, that, that anxiety, even around personal interactions, like I'm sure I'm going to continue to wave at the end of meetings, even when I'm in real life. Like that's, I think that's just part of my thing now. But as you lead your teams at work, 
into this new chapter for all of us? Are there additional resources you're bringing to bear or are there different tools in your emotional toolbox that you're sharpening or getting ready to implement? It's a great question. You know, I, I, I've overused the word grace. I was, I was banned as a writer from using the word grace anymore in 2021 because I overused it in 2020. Uh, but to me, um, allowing each other grace, the dignity of our process and um, the, the power of empathy uh, in, in being able to understand that loving parenting uh, in a respectful manner comes in all relationships right now. I have to lovingly parent myself through processes and I have to lovingly parent in other relationships, which to me says, um, here's where we want to go. Just like Lisa was saying, here's where we want to be. And and here's how we're going to try to get there. And we're going to have to give some grace along the way. I I believe in, in therapy and counseling and this isn't just about going back to a workplace or going back to school. This is about taking a look at the instincts that we have as people that have been inflamed or engaged or are a little out of whack right now. And one of the ways I know that an instinct is kind of at odds is that I'll feel some fear. And if I feel some fear, that means I've got an instinct that's going on. And, I, and if I can take a little bit of time to take a look at what's really going on here, so for me, I don't have any great resources and I'm super open to all suggestions because it's going to be important. Um, but I really do believe in the, let's take care of ourselves. Where are we at? And then don't stop there. Take the step over to your teammate and over there and, and try to figure out what you can do for them with them. And if everybody on the team, it's like the buddy system. If we could all do that a little bit more, I, I think it will help. Uh, say, I understand that this is hard to do, but we need to get there because in October or September, this is what's going to be expected. I hope. I think your comment about meeting people where they are, I've used that phrase over the years. I think that I really believed in what that meant, but it's very different right now. And I think the way in which we meet people where they are is understanding and listening to what they need. And so in the team that I work with it is vastly different. So months ago, I had one teammate that was very ready to rent a party bus and head down to the wineries in Oregon as a team building activity. And I was a little bit surprised that that was a, a suggestion. And then other team members that really feel comfortable in this safety of working from home and, and maybe wanting to do that a little bit more long term. And so as I'm thinking about what does it look like to return to working together, it's not going to be the same for each person. It will definitely be reflective of what they each need. And then I also think that I love, Kelly, your comment about kind of a warm blanket and, and snacks. So I've really tried to follow channel Elizabeth Holmes and your commitment to kind of continuing to support local restaurants and local businesses. And so whenever possible, I'm trying to 
figure out a way to, you know, I feel like we each need some of that celebration and, and snacks to help us, you know, just manage a full day on Zoom. Or I'm also seeing that we're not taking breaks. So it's right. easy to do back-to-back meetings because I don't have to go anywhere. We don't have that travel time that is usually factored in where I might have a granola bar and as I'm driving from meeting to meeting. So I am trying to find local restaurants that I can send food. So, you know, we're having lunch, uh, a lunch meeting from 12 to one, and you need to place your order because food will be delivered by foodie to each of your homes between, you know, 1130 and 1230. So we can all eat together while we're on Zoom, but we have the ability to actually nourish our bodies and our minds while we're working together. So really just trying to do more of that. I hope that some of the delivery options that we have built into how we support local businesses continues, even after we're able to go to the restaurant together, because it is kind of a fun way to, to offer a little comfort uh, without being there to give a hug. That's right. And all this being said, it's not to say that that we don't have tough teams. We have really tough teams and they are driven and they will go and go and go. Um, so I think these these uh, ways of comfort and support and I see you and I value you, um, you know, that's just sprinkled in because of what we're seeing that they're doing every single day. And I know that I have folks that are working in their laundry rooms right? We have folks with little kids and we have home situations that are challenging and not always safe. So folks are doing the hardest work, I believe, that they've probably ever done, whether they're working from home or they're coming into the stores and working wherever people are at right now. I just really think for all of us to acknowledge always that not to assume that their experience is anything like my experience, And when I start to look under the covers, I realize I have got it pretty easy. So uh, that's my responsibility is to make sure that I don't start making assumptions like it's a piece of cake, right? People are working hard. They are. Kelly, you're so good. Love you. I can't remember when we all first met, but I've been very grateful for the uh, friendships. They don't have to be like we go and do things together and get pedicures or or, or do things, but um, there's always those connections in our community uh, that's available to us if we want to tap into it. And there have been times that um, I have wanted to be reclusive and pull back and shrink away from things. And I'm very grateful. It's uh, strong women who've been through things that are always kind of right there. I don't know how that happened on my pathway just when I needed them. So all that to say, I guess, I'm grateful uh, for the people who've been put along my path. And I need the people who've been put on my path. None of us are self-sufficient. Yeah, I would like to talk about your path a little bit. Journalism to politics to business community, to healthcare, to education, right? Did I miss anything? It's either brilliant or it's a series of mishaps. <laughs> and I think, you know, really, have you touched a sector that hasn't had phenomenal change and turmoil? All of those sectors, while you were in them, 
in particular, we're going through real growth, tons of evolution. So this idea of change management and making the new normal on the fly, that, that can't be anything new to you looking at your pathway. But how do you, I mean, do you think about how you draw on each of those experiences? Did they kind of build on each other or... Yeah, I look at my friends who are now retiring from jobs where they've been at them for 20 years. And I'm like, oh, why didn't I do that? That just would have made so much more sense. I respect their um, perseverance and their dedication and their commitment. And, and yet then I have to not have regret or remorse over the path that I've taken because it's been driven by my desire. I, I have strong, what I've learned is there are things about me that I understand now. I love new challenges. I love new things. I love variety. I mean, what better to be a news reporter than to have an entirely new existence presented to you every single day and you'll deliver some product at five o'clock that night. (laughs) And then you'll go home and you'll do it again the next day. But the biggest thing that I see that has driven my career choices or the opportunities that have just kind of come to me and then I go to them has been people. So we have a dear friend and I'll name drop and I'll say Brian Willoughby. And his phrase was always that people are his touchstone. Not a place, not a home, not a monument, people. And so when I look at what has driven me throughout my career, it has been this desire to be connected and to be very much in the center of things with people as a reporter, as a congressional staffer, because I didn't like the politics and I still don't understand them. Uh, My boss always said to me, he said, that's good. Know how to work within the system, but don't fall in love with it. Fall in love with the people. So uh, that's been the common denominator, I think, on what my sweet spot is, is the ability to uh, manage a lot of change and uh, become comfortable with uncomfort. (laughs) Who knew that? Uh, and to be challenged, knowing that these aren't always jobs for me. They've been more like assignments. Ooh. When the assignment is over, learning to be comfortable with the idea that it's not failure, right? It is, um, yep, you did what you were supposed to do there. And if you look at the signs and you check your universe, it's time to go, maybe, and go do something else. So that's my career I love that. It looks like you're a curious person. Would you label yourself as a curious person? Uh, Yes, I think that's great. Uh, But also, let's look at the other side of it. I'm a bit impulsive. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love new. I love change in that way. I haven't always been comfortable acknowledging that about myself. But I, I don't think it's necessarily a negative thing. It just comes back to that keeping it within the the boundaries of some curiosity is really good. If it gets out of whack, now I'm I'm just a job hopper. I don't think we even have job hoppers now, do we, Lisa? Didn't the millennials do away with that? (laughs) You're actually very new gen. So um, (laughs) we're finding that the need to experiment and try new opportunities with vastly different careers is kind of the way of our millennials right now. And taking a page out of their book, I think, helps some of us that 
don't like to be stretched outside of our comfort zone. But when I look at all of the different opportunities to lead that you have taken on, I see it as someone who looks for an opportunity to help make some of those changes and to lead that organization to a point where they're healthy again, or that particular, you know, I mean, in this case, you, you did have an opportunity to serve as the district director for a congressional representative that there was a gap, you filled that, and then you've moved to the next opportunity to step in and do some problem solving and to lead. And so I have so much respect for all of the different opportunities you've stepped into when from a community perspective, it seemed as though we're at a point where we need some new leadership here. We need to adapt and be flexible and maybe in that system right now, the way that that system's moving forward needs some fresh energy and some creativity. And that's definitely on brand Kelly Love. Wow. I owe you a therapy fee for that. Thanks for that. You know, the the three words that will turn my head faster than anything in the world is we need you. (laughs) And if I hear that, I'm like, I am in because at my core, right. And I think for a lot of us, uh, I recognize I like to be needed. I I like to, uh, I like to be valued, uh, but really I want to be needed. And, And that extends way beyond work. That's in everything, right? We want our kids to need us. Now, we can draw parameters around that in terms of what kind of need, but we want our parents to be able to rely on us. We want our spouses and our families and our friends to know that they can count on us and that we're going to be there and be present. Um, And so that desire to be of value and and to be needed uh, drives a lot of my decisions, good or bad. You have done such an amazing amount of reflection and journaling gratitude, being able to thread your story through your learning and your growth and and, and how you are introspective about who you are today and, and who you want to be in the future. I'm curious, almost two years ago, we asked you to participate in a little project that really proud to have been able to see actually published, which is our omitted from my obituary anthology. And I'm just curious if you would share a little bit about what was it like to write your story? It was over a a longer period of time where we kind of did first draft and then, you know, second draft. And we really promise we are doing this. We are going to publish this. And and we did during COVID, which I think might have been exactly the right time for us to, to complete that project. But I'm hoping you can share a little bit about your thinking process and and your writing process relative to your chapter. Yeah, well, t- kudos to both of you. I mean, and talk about uh, a labor of love and, and not knowing what the outcome was going to be, but understanding what was driving you, what your intent was, and, and not even knowing what the impact might be, right? That's, that's a leap of faith. So I, I'm grateful to you uh, both for allowing me a chance to be a part of that extraordinary group of women, right? It was daunting. Um, I was intimidated to, to be part of this group. These are like rock solid women. So the process for me uh, was very cathartic, which is a little self-centered, but I'll always remember uh, writing, and you guys know this phrase, 
SFD. It's a Brene Brown phrase. It stands for shitty first draft. <laughs> so I wrote my SFD and I, um, I thought there's no way. There's no way that I'm going to be able to turn something that has any value for this book. And uh, I'm super grateful for the time then to sit it down for a while and then come back to it and then come back to it. In the end, it's a very simple story. It, it's my attempt to uh, show folks a little bit about who I am on the inside. Uh, and the single most important revelation in my world, uh, which came when I was 36 years old. And um, I was a I thought a usual drinker, a normal drinker, I would have told you that. And I didn't have any consequences. I didn't have DUIs or lost homes. I did tank a marriage, um, but that's a different story. I had signs, certainly. But by the age of 36, I'm working at KGW and I'm an anchor woman, a reporter, and I got little kids. And presumably I have my act together. But really underneath that, years and different things that I had not processed and all rooted in shame, because shame is a biggie. I drank uh, to smooth out rough edges in my life. And my relationship with alcohol as I got older changed. And I found myself drinking more and under different circumstances, hiding it. That's part of that shame. And because I grew up in a home where alcohol was so prevalent, my father, by his own admission, was a violent blackout drinker. And we spent lots of nights in shelters. And we, we had a tough, tough childhood growing up. And I went to Alateen meetings because my mama made me because she was going to Al-Anon. So I always kind of knew that that was in my family. And I just was not ever going to let it be a problem for me. And so for 20 years, I drank. I thought I drank fairly normal, although I drank a lot. And um, I didn't have consequences, or I didn't think so, until I did. And this story just talks about, uh, it touches on that night that I had a consequence that was so significant that it um, filled me with this shame that, um, I'll, I'll tell you, after, uh, so it was an assault, and um, we don't use the R word, but it was a rape. We, I don't know, it's like code for, we say assault, sounds better somehow. I was never going to tell a soul what had happened ever, ever. And I knew it was partly because I was drinking that night. I'd gone down to a bar. My friends had gone home. I'm 36. I am past my drinking years. And I have to be back at work at KGW at 5 a.m. I have to be on the air at 6 a.m., all happy. But at 2 a.m., I was assaulted. And afterwards, I was never going to tell anybody. And I showed up at the TV station that morning. I didn't put this part in the book. And I put my makeup on and I found a spare jacket and I uh, read my scripts and I got out on the set and I made nice talk with, with the weather guy. And I attempted to bury it so that I would never ever have to tell a soul. I'm so grateful because that's what did me in on the inside. I couldn't keep that secret. And within days, I began to see things I hadn't seen for 20 years, which was, oh, yeah, you do drink a lot. And you drink for all the wrong reasons. And, and you drank with your kids at one time. Do you remember? 
right? All that stuff starts flooding in because I had to accept that I had a consequence that was so grave that could never, ever be rationalized away. So um, that was uh, 21 years ago. And because of my AA, you know, family origin and going to Alateen, it didn't take me all that long to see that I too was on that path. And I was not like my dad or not like my brother or my uncle or my aunt, my cousins, whatever, right? Uh, But that my relationship with alcohol was um, unhealthy. And so I began to embrace the word alcoholic and I embraced a 12-step program. It has been life-changing because once I got sober and I didn't have a, I didn't have a hard time getting sober. I will say that I just got sober. I never drank again, but the emotional baggage and the shame and all of that stuff underneath, once I was sober, holy moly, I was going to have to take a look at that. Um, And so that's been my progress or my process in the 12-step program over the last 20 years is learning about what are the instincts that drive my behaviors and what are the causes of the shame or the the pain um, and how to release that and how to get real about who I am. And here's the big one, still working on it, how to be okay with who I am because I'm not anybody else, even though I'd like to be. I have lots of insecurities. I have lots of self-doubts. My brain works against me often. Uh, but to be okay with who I am in this moment and surround myself with people like you and, and the folks that God puts on my path that we learn from each other. So there was nothing more ego deflating than walking into an AA meeting as uh, Kelly Love from Channel 8 News. Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the only thing I know to say, and the reason I bring that up, was that I am grateful that I was just miserable enough, just long enough that I was willing to put my ego aside and say, I don't care who knows that I have a problem with alcohol. Uh, I got to be here. So uh, that's, I guess, a little bit of what the story's about. And I haven't told that story often, but I once in a while will run across people out in the community who are exploring their own relationship with alcohol. And I would never be the one to say, oh, yeah, you have a problem. I really want to honor the dignity of everyone's process Um, because I've had family members who have looked at theirs like they were standing on the cliff and they were able to pull back. Um, For me, this was a process and a pathway that was best for me. And to identify as an alcoholic who hasn't drank for 21 years, I'm good with that. We are so thankful that you were willing to share your story. And I will tell you that I cried when I read it. I um, had already had such admiration for you, but that became so much deeper that you were not only willing to share with us your story, but that I was honored enough to be able to be part of um, helping you to share it with the world in a tangible way. So thank you for sharing your story. It's incredible and I know has touched more than just me from my heart to yours thank you I want to hug you I want to you know, <laughs> I want to be able to just make sure you understand how important and meaningful that's been yeah it's been one of the stories that people have called out like 
specifically from the book that have really touched them and the timeliness of it. I know Lisa and I despaired of getting the book ever out into the world, but the timing actually turned out to be, I think, perfect. The rise of problematic relationships with alcohol during this pandemic has been so concerning. And just to see even before this pandemic, I mean, so I have seen over this last year during COVID. So, um, and, and I don't say the actual name of the 12 step group only because I try to honor the tradition that talks about personal anonymity, but suffice to say that the fellowship, the 12 step fellowship is alive and well during COVID-19 meeting in zoom rooms internationally. I'm on a meeting almost every night with folks from New Zealand and Japan, there's a dude from Brazil. But what we bring to the table is that dude's got 18 days. That woman's got three months. This person just celebrated a year. They got sober during COVID using the program and the steps. But where it's at, it's all about connection and belonging. And to be able to identify so that you can connect and you can belong um, as many folks who are struggling with their relationship with alcohol or cigarettes or chocolate. Um, <laughs> fellowship, connection, belonging is alive and well within COVID-19 uh, for folks who need that, that little bit of that oomph. Because what we think is the worst thing ever in our lives, how many times can that also be the best thing? Now, there's exceptions to that rule. You know, when people we love dearly, when they die, I have a hard time finding anything good coming out of that. It just is. But when a bad thing happens, if I, if I lose a job or I have a problem here or, you know, my kids, to look for the blessing in every single thing that comes my way, um, to try to figure out what is God trying to show me here. So thanks, you guys. I really appreciate being part of your project. It was amazing. When you said yes, we were just so delighted over the table. <laughs> I'm driving home going, what the hell did you just agree to? You don't tell anybody that story. We should go get coffee. We should go down to the waterfront. I know. There's a new waterfront coffee shop down there, I hear, that just opened. Yeah, Sadie from that, I think it's pronounced coffee place next to the park. It's her new venture. Did she move it? I think she's expanding. So she has two. I think she's doing two. It's just a reminder, right? For all the challenges that we're going to face in these next six months. I know I'm in a hurry to start. Let's get excited um, to remind ourselves. There are new coffee places out there. There are restaurants that need us. There are people who need us. Um, our, my world's about to expand. And I hope for everybody else that it can be in a positive way where we're bringing value to each and, and, and every person. And I get to hug you on the waterfront when I see you next. So I want to be respectful of your time. And you have, there's so many quotes to pull out from what you just have shared with us that are kind of truth bombs that just really appreciate the time. Is there anything else that you want to share or feel like you were ready to talk about that we didn't cover? No, because I have no idea what I said. And it's really just the best. I've, I've always been told, if you don't remember what you said, likelihood is it came from your heart, less likely it came from your head. And in this situation and these connections, you know, um, that's the gift because I'll go through the whole rest of my day feeling that bounce of energy um, from, from you 
that I appreciate very much. And I am very grateful to be a part of this community. I have been blessed to be accepted because I'm kind of a mess up, but I seem to be included. So I'm so happy. If you're a mess up, oh my goodness. I'm not sure what that makes me. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) Or if that's what mess up looks like, I will embrace the label. During these times of change, we hope you tune in to hear women's stories of resilience. We believe in shining the light on women's stories. Please help us to illuminate women's stories by sharing the podcast or picking up one of our books. If you're local, our book is available at Vintage Books in Vancouver, Washington, or you can find our book anywhere in the world on Amazon. And we need you to check us out at trusttreegroup.com. You can reach out through the website to purchase our delight candles subscribe to the podcast and share the podcast with your friends. Connect us to extraordinary women in your life who have stories they are ready to share. Sign up for our newsletter, follow us on social media. If you're curious about who we are, check out Radiant Badass and you'll have the opportunity to listen to Elizabeth Holmes podcast and to read her blog. I'm Lisa and I'm Elizabeth and together we are Trust Tree.